0: Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Novara Media, and on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age, so you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the Navarramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough, just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of
1: ACFM. This is Ash.
2: Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn and I'm joined by the usual unusual crew, Nadia Idle. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're going to talk about a topic we've discussed doing since we've started this podcast, the long 90s. Uh, Jeremy, you're probably best placed to explain what we mean by the long 90s and uh, perhaps you could also touch on why we might be wanting to talk about it now in particular. Okay, so the long 90s is a phrase that various
0: people have used. The first time I used it was at an academic conference in 2015 and then it got picked up by a couple of people in the press or whatever because I put it on a blog. And, And at least what I meant by it was the idea that there was this fairly consistent historical phase that begins really on a global scale with the defeat of communism, you know, at the end of the Soviet Union. And it's sort of consolidated by the formation of the World Trade Organization, the globalization of the neoliberal Washington Consensus in 94. And it carries on into some time into the 21st century. And it's, and it's characterized by a sense that although technology is changing a lot, At the level of politics and also at the level of culture, there's a sense of nothing much changing, like very substantially. Whether that period is now over is another question, but that's what I sort of meant by the long 90s. And why we're talking about it now is because, well, one way of understanding the sort of political, cultural differences between the left, certainly in Britain and also in some other places, and its most immediate opponents meaning not like the right-wing of politics, really, but the entrenched of neoliberal centre, is that the centre sort of centrist politicians and their most ardent supporters amongst the wider public are in some sense sort of culturally, politically, you know, sort of psychologically, epistemologically sort of stuck in this, still stuck in the long 90s. And in fact... The whole project of like British centrist politics is an almost a sort of magical attempt to bring it back, you know, to bring us back to the golden era of like 1997 to 2010. That is the po- political and cultural outlook of the constituency that we like to refer to as the centrist dads.
1: So when we were talking about this, when we were talking about this, I um I went and did a Google of of the long nineties, and apart from some excellent works by a certain Jeremy Gilbert, there wasn't much that was out there um on the internet using that term. But when we had a chat about it, and I realised that this was very. Very similar, very similar concept to the whole end of history conception. So I was studying, I was doing a master's in political economy um, around 2004, and 2005. And, you know, some of the theories that were coming out that we were having to study is stuff by neoliberal economists like Francis Fukuyama, etc., who had come out with all of this this stuff a few years earlier that basically capitalism had won, and capitalism and liberal democracy um, have created the beginning of the end, effectively, and there could not and will not be any real hegemonic political system that will work on a global scale after the defeat of communism, um, as in 1989, 1990, with the Berlin Wall, but also in terms of the, the supposed successes of capitalism under Liberal democracy. So there was this whole kind of quite, I think, bolshy set of academic writing around that time, the kind of late 90s and early 2000s, which is like, this is it, this is the system, there will not be fascism again, there will not be communism again, this is what we've got, um, and this is the best way forward. It might have its problems, but there is not going to be a global political, uh, you know, a challenge on a, a level of political economy again um yes and then we'll discuss we'll discuss in a bit whether we think that i mean i don't think that's true and we've we've seen it we've seen we've seen that not to be true but yeah i think that's that's what the long 90s um kind of means to me
2: well uh, one of the reasons that, it, that, that this topic has sort of haunted this podcast I don't know if haunted is the right word but but we've talked <laughs> well, we've talked about doing it since right at the beginning and it, and it's partly because there's a sense that it's not just the ideology but it's also the structure of feeling of the 1990s which is a, a Raymond Williams concept we might come back to a bit later you know the whole way it felt to live in the 1990s the sorts of the dominant sort of attitudes of that era they basically haunted. The reason they're long is that they basically last well into the two thousands. In fact, they're still really around now. And there's, you know, a, a very, very important cohort of the population who basically cannot escape that period and cannot understand that um, that, the, that their formative views are in fact specific to a certain time or you know informed by a specific historical period, which may not may no longer pertain or exist basically. And so the reason it's the reason it dominated this. Podcast is because, of course, we were talking about acid corbinism, particular moment in history when something else seemed to emerge, basically, and the 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 idea that that world of the nineteen nineties is not just gone, but is now completely antagonistic to the the sort of emergent structure of feeling of generation left, if you want to put it that way means that there's just been this real strong antagonism between what we might think of as a young left and the centrist dads, the sort of like Generation X cohort who dominate political commentary in The Guardian, perhaps even dominate the sort of BBC, et cetera. Uh, so that's why it's haunted our sort of period. But of course, we're in a new, new period now <laughs> where perhaps the centrist dads won. Perhaps the centrist dads have won in terms of they now seem to control the Labour Party. And that seems to have gone absolutely disastrously wrong. (laughs) Um, Keir Starmer's ratings and and the Labour Party's ratings in the polls seem to indicate that, yes, the dads really are out of time. They're from a different historical period and have utterly, absolutely no grasp on the current moment, basically. This, but is, then... this is
1: nuts, because I've just realised as you were speaking, here that I've dreamt of Keir Starmer last night. Why? <laughs> Why? Go go on, and we'll we'll, we'll get back to centristas. Sorry to interrupt.
2: What I want to end on, on the whole whole podcast, is to think about... You know, are we really exiting the long '90s? Because centrism in the U.S. seems to be taking a very, very different turn to the centrism now. And um, so, we want to sort of try to work out what that structure of feeling was in the 1990s. Was it inevitable? Was there other potentials in the '90s? What caused it? Why is it no longer historically relevant? Why is it just not accord to to the the conditions we live in now?
1: On the centrist dads thing, I think I think what we're trying to say is there is a there is a group of people who cannot accept that the material reality of the world that they live in has changed since 1997, and they get get confused. They cannot accept the the material conditions of change, and they operate in terms of their political opinions and wielding of power, etc., as if it's still the 90s, whereas, in fact, there has been a whole political crash that's affected the UK in a massive way, and then also Brexit, and then also the Labour Party has changed, etc. But, as you're saying, they wield power. Is that is that a fair kind of...
0: Yeah, I think, well, that's right. But I would take it a bit further and say, I mean, this is just adding to what you said. So like the end of history hypothesis that you referred to, mm-hmm. Francis Fukuyama's argument made around 1990 was, as you said, Nadia, was that the defeat of the Soviet Union in the Cold War literally meant history as we had known it was now over history in the form of a a grand contest between ideologies and political and economic systems was over that there would be some residual elements like bits of the muslim world that would continue trying to do something different but over the long term liberal liberal democracy plus capitalism was the only social and economic system that would persist so the centre of that centrist ad cohort, I think, is people like a couple of years older than us, really. It, it's people in their 50s now, and it's people who were at university in the second half of the 80s. And their formative political sort of historic experience was the experience of the total defeat of the left by Thatcher in the 80s and on a global scale, like the defeat of communism in the Cold War, and the fact that they were old enough. Like most people our age and younger weren't really old enough at that time to have to fully processed it but if you were like 16 during the miners' strike you know you can remember it and you process it they experienced that but then you know because they because the people we're talking about specifically are people in in the small minority who would have gone to university already in the late 80s or early 90s you know they got decent jobs they got professional jobs they benefited from the property boom they benefited from the wide effect of the tech boom and they've basically been insulated from any of the sort of trauma which has affected other social groups during that whole period. They haven't suffered the sort of cultural, social, economic dislocation and impoverishment of people in the post-industrial regions. They haven't suffered the kind of inability to get good jobs or homes as affected younger people. And their great kind of moment, I mean, their, their whole political experience was constant tory victory apart from under tony blair you know the only time the tories ever got beaten was by tony blair a new labour was represented like the limit of actual reform that anybody has been able to implement during that whole period so it's it's really understandable that they've really internalized this idea and also they were at university at the very moment when you know within sort of social theory and and Related areas of academic work, you know, ideas like postmodernism, that sort of anti-Marxist turn was really at its sort of height. And they've internalised you know, from multiple directions the idea that, as admirable as they may have been, uh, the ideals of the traditional left, of socialism, the idea of class as an analytical lens through which to understand power relationships, the idea of class struggle as a motor of history, all of these are redundant concepts. And that the only thing, if you try to activate those concepts politically or pragmatically or analytically, it can only lead to disaster. It can only lead either to the gulags or Tiananmen Square or to just political defeat and marginality. And so and they completely internalised the idea that the social gains that their generation experienced, things like the widespread normalisation and acceptance of same-sex relationships, the very much improved status of women from the professional classes, even the kind of widespread critique of the most vulgar forms of institutionalised racism, that all those gains were like the most that you could possibly have expected in, in the form of social progress. And so now these guys are in their 50s, 10, 15 years away from retirement. They've got houses. They made loads of money. You know, there's absolutely no motivation for them to ever reflect upon the fact that, well, apart from anything else, the whole new Labour project, like massively benefited them, but it it didn't benefit a lot of other people nearly as much as they think it did, or as much as they would have liked it to. And there's all these constituencies out there, you know, both young people, both generation left, and the sort of left behind constituencies of the post industrial regions who were never really given much by the new Labour project, and and were left nothing by it once it finished in in 2010. So, they are really deeply emotionally, psychically, culturally, intellectually, politically invested in a set of assumptions about the way the world works and the way the world has to work, and following those assumptions has hugely benefited them materially and personally, like all through their lives you know they've knuckled down and gone along with it and gone along with you know the sort of neoliberal consensus and accepted what it has to offer. But since twenty ten, especially since twenty fifteen, they're confronted with a situation in which the fact that a major that doesn't apply to a majority of the population has really caused them problems. So it caused them a problem in the in the form of Brexit, it's caused them a problem in the form of Corbynism. It's causing them a problem in the, in the form of the Tories, embracing a kind of nationalist conservatism, which is different from the sort of Thatcherite iteration of neoliberalism, which they they define themselves against to some extent. But they don't really have any motivation to actually go do the work, the kind of analytical or psychological work of figuring out how to cope with this new situation. Because why should they? You know, they're powerful enough, they're rich enough, that nothing is really forcing them to confront the fact that a lot of their assumptions were either always wrong or are no longer relevant.
1: I think that the thing that would have changed that... Is if there was a huge cultural revolution in terms of music and um, innovation?
2: I don't think that's true. Like, cause we can get take Jem's argument a little bit further and look. It's always really hard to put yourself in history, right? It's really hard to to, to sort of like do that analytical work as Jem just put it. In fact, consciousness raising, right? That's what we've talked about it before. Trying to position yourself, understand how you fit into history and and wider social structural forces and dynamics. I think it's always difficult to do that. And then therefore, you know, the the ideas that you grew up with, you have to think about, well, what what was influencing my take up of those ideas? And how do I have to change those ideas now that the world has changed? Right. It's always difficult to do that. But it's triply difficult for that specific cohort to do it. Right. And we can do that. We can make this argument through um, my own sort of generational analysis which is like you know you you have these generational distinctions when you have events when you have moments of sort of rapid change basically and what is the end of history the end of history is the is the the idea that like there will never be an event again there will no longer be these events of rapid change that, that they finished there will no longer be economic crises even at the end of boom and bust as as Gordon Brown put it so that the the ideology of that particular cohort is there will never be a new generation of innovation which will come along and tip our ideology out of the saddle basically there will never be an event again therefore there can never be a new generation again so when you have something like generation left come along you can only see that as like this the residual the last man sort of residual um, elements of, of of francis Fukuyama's analysis basically but you can
0: only see it as pathological I mean, that's... This well, is... like,
2: that's exactly what they did. Yeah. That's what that's what a, the Corbin cult, cultism, is that this is some pathology caused by some sort of mystical force, basically, yeah.
1: But why are you saying that it's particularly difficult for that cohort?
2: Because uh, in the cohort before that, the sort of baby boomer cohort, perhaps, they'd lived through periods of, of, of big, big change, right? And you live through a period when when the idea that there were like different classes in society... Uh, and those classes were, were sort of ag- antagonistic to them. You know, that, that was part of history. History still happened through the 20th century. It's only in that, like, period in the sort of 90s where you have a, a really, really solid... I mean, ideology is always that, that, that you know, we are outside of history, right? But that one is one which which precludes any new events ever happening again. That's what the end of history thesis is. Is ideology squared basically for the for the for the centrist dad generation.
1: But don't you think that it is it is potentially it would have been possible that because one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, which you guys are gonna talk about, I think, is about the fact that the that the there was there wasn't this massive like change and revolution in music, for example, in that period as it was in the previous decade. So the thesis that I'm coming up with is, well, maybe it's not just about events but it's also about oh my god people look really different than they did you know in the 1990s but in 2000 people didn't look that different than they did in 1990
0: you, I think you are onto something there, Nadia. I mean, you, you there mean, isn't
1: there isn't that external thing to to force you to go. Oh my God! Everyone was wearing, you know, nineteen fifties, you know, housewives, prim and proper, and whatever. And then suddenly, it's like the nineteen sixties, and everyone looks different. That would force you, I would imagine, that would force you to accept that the world is changing around you, even if you did not want to look at the global events or understand politics, etc. So. So that's just like an offering that it might be one of the factors. No,
0: I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, one of the things the long 90s thesis was sort of trying to get to grips with was this long sense of sort of cultural stasis. You know, the example I always give recently is what what's the most popular show on Netflix, including with like school age kids, it's Friends. You know, it's a show from like, you know, 25 years ago now from the 90s. It's like the ultimate long 90s cultural artefact. But it's also the fact, you know, it's a, it's a sort of cliche I always say to students. You know, if you, if you look at photographs of students or young people, you know, over the course of the 60s, 70s, 80s in, into them sometime in the mid-90s, you can pretty much pinpoint what year it is, you know, within a couple of years from what people are wearing and hairstyles. And that just stops being the case after about 95. There are obviously changes, as we talked about when preparing the show, but they're much subtler. I would have thought if you'd have told me in 1995 uh, you're still going to be wearing your hoodie and jeans all the time to work I'd have said yeah I probably will but I've assumed it would have been like a guy in the 80s like who's still wearing flares to work or something but it isn't like nobody it doesn't date me at all really it doesn't mark me out as belonging to a specific cohort in the way it once would have done who's going to tell him now, dear well no you can <laughs> 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 I'd like to see, I know how you I've seen you're, you're no different one of my biggest problems with the kind of brick prop obsessed music press in the 90s was that nobody talked about bristol the music journals in the mid-90s, because they loved Oasis, they were still obsessed with Manchester, like as they had been since like the Manchester moment of the late 80s with things like the Happy Mondays, despite the fact that actually all the really great Manchester bands had come and gone like, by 1988. But there was never a moment when it was like part of public discourse, like, oh, look, all the great music in Britain is coming from Bristol. But Bristol was, it was this incredibly distinctive sort of matrix from which... This kind of multicultural music emerged. Like that, the first really famous band to come out of Bristol, doing this British synthesis of sort of hip hop, soul, house, and techno, was Massive Attack. You yeah, huge band, like widely recognised as one of the most important bands in Britain in the early nineties. And then by nineteen ninety seven. Where the kind of mainstream music culture had been forced to accept that jungle wasn't just noise, that its evolution into drum and bass demonstrated how formally important it was, and that was really registered by Ronnie Size, another Bristol, a Bristol uh, drum and bass producer, being awarded the Mercury Music Prize in 1997. So this is a track, "Brown Paper Bag" by Ronnie Size.
2: interesting thing with Massive Attack is that like they specifically emerge out of reggae sound system culture you know the wild bunch which is why they're interesting and which is why they were ignored by 90s NME writers yeah absolutely no that's
0: true well I mean reggae sound system culture was a sort of incubator for a lot of those developments that would define their expression in in jungle in drum and bass in the free party scene it plays a really important role yeah completely ignored completely ignored by the ideologues of white guitar rock but we're over that now (laughs) yeah (laughs) well also we won i mean you know we we there's no question who won the cultural battle over whether mc
2: culture and ragga beats were more important than no gallagher As we survey the cultural wastelands and devastation before us, we can say that at least we won.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but then there's people like me who are still listening to Noel Gallagher, so maybe, you know, you have lost. So let's go back to the Friends example just to to be clear about what the logical conclusion of the use of that example is, Jeremy, because what I think you're saying is that this cultural stuff from the 90s is still watchable today as if it's current like there's a, there's a, there's a whole set of people of all sorts of different ages who can watch that stuff and it doesn't seem like it's from a million years ago it's not like it's not like watching I'm trying to think of another show. I'm not
2: sure that's true about friends
1: no See, I mean, I hate Friends, so I can't really. But we
2: always we all hated Friends. I hated Friends at the time.
1: Some people love it.
0: Um, The three of us hate Friends, and we hated it then. But kids, teenagers, watch it now, and it doesn't look like from a million years ago.
2: Isn't that like a more nostalgic thing? Because you know, they basically they barely work; they spend all their time in in the sort of coffee shop, uh, and they live in these huge apartments no i don't think the kids the kids i mean i'm talking about kids my
0: daughter's they're not old enough yet for that to be something they have any really consciousness of that to be something of to be nostalgic
2: for because you wouldn't have those sort of conditions now it's, it's a bit like spaced you know that comedy um show from the 90s you know because they're on the dough living in these huge houses in london etc well
0: that's all that's all true but that, that that would be if we were talking about 25 year olds and yeah but i don't think we are really and I also think it's not just about like the mise-en-scene and the material conditions. It's the fact that it's a, it's a certain kind of like harmless, good-natured American sitcom, which they're still churning out variations of, basically. You know, if you want to say, is it of its time? Are we still in that moment? It's the sense of, well, if somebody made that show now, would it still be popular? And I think it would. And, and the other, I mean, the big example that I'm always yeah interested in is music. And so one of the things that, you know, people like myself and more publicly people like simon reynolds and mark Fisher were really preoccupied with from about sort of 2005 2010 was this persistent sense that the kind of the sort of cultural norm that we'd grown up with which was with the idea that music culture would generate not just good music not just distinctive music but totally new genres of music which couldn't have been imagined five years previously and that it would do this on a regular basis, like every few years, just seems to stop. It seems to sort of come to an end, really. With, it really comes to an end with the 20th century. The people who try to argue with me when I say this are people who don't know that much about music and not much about music for the 90s. Like, no, include... You're
1: setting us including,
0: up. including really young people who are really deeply immersed in music culture. It's just a given. It's just a truism to make this observation. And it, it's not to say there isn't loads of good music. But, you know, there isn't an equivalent to like the event of drum and bass being heard for the first time in the 90s or punk rock emerging for the first time in the 70s. And that's one of the things that the long 90s thesis was sort of tr- is, is also responding to. It's trying to get us, you know, trying to capture this sense of sort of relative stasis. I mean, the thing I think it's always important to clarify about this. You know, my perspective is one of the problems with this sort of apocalyptic response to the end of that long cycle of musical innovation yeah, at the end of the twentieth century, was was it assumed that somehow that was a historic norm which we were now departing from? And I would say no. There's a specific historic window of a few decades when, when there's like the most intense period of formal innovation in music ever, and you need to explain that before you start saying, "Oh, why is it ended? And isn't it terrible that it's ended?" And well, I, doesn't I,
1: that map up with the welfare state?
0: Yeah, it does. But let, can we get back to that? Can we get, come back in a minute? Like, what? What did? It, I mean, that's a whole other question. It's a whole glad. other question. What caused that period of musical innovation? Because I just, I really feel also because I work a lot with students who are themselves who are mu- like practicing musicians. I feel like it's important even to say, look, in some ways, it's quite liberating to not have to be living through this historical process where you're constantly supposed to be making music that nobody would have been making three years previously. Like, I, I think there's whole sub-genres of music that never got a chance to even develop properly because, because we were living through this, this relentless, you know, epoch of neophilia, sort of yeah, in fascination with the endlessly new. So it's not that, it's not a question of making value judgments. It's just a question of there having been a historical cultural shift to which we need to sort of respond. Okay, so why am I going on about all that? Because, I mean, basically, the long 90s hypothesis is trying to get to grips with this complex set of relationships between politics and culture. And I, say, I would say after 2015 in particular, one of the things that seems to be going on is there's a, sort of, there's a certain disjunction, at least. There's clearly at the level of, p- of politics, at the level of formal politics, the long 90s is over. The long 90s is not, it is not defined by a period in which Jeremy Corbyn doesn't become prime minister. You know, Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister was always a historical long shot, a very much an outside chance. Within the period of the long 90s, the very idea of Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party is totally unthinkable. It's absolutely outside the realm of the possibility. And then it happens. The Labour Party loses Scotland. That was unthinkable. The public vote to lead the EU. That was unthinkable. All these unthinkable things happen. On the other thing, I think things after 2015 and after, even back after 2010, things do start to re-emerge. I mean, certain senses, I, I think in certain areas of music, there are new levels of innovation and kind of new echoes of innovative moments from the 70s that, that weren't possible before. But at, at the level of broad mainstream culture, you know, there's this massive like sort of political change happening. But we're still living in a world in which, indeed, once Friend is on Netflix, it becomes the most popular show on Netflix, despite the claims made for a golden age of television, etc. But I think now I think that's a really good point. Then, what I've, your point, Nadia, then is that, well, to some extent, that persistence at the level of the culture of of this of sort of '90s idioms and the '90s structure of feeling it does completely enable people who are basically opposed to the emergence of Generation Left, the emergence of some new kind of 21st century politics to just sort of keep telling themselves that actually it's not normal. It's not you know that the, that the, the political norms of the 90s can't really be contravened. I think that's a really powerful observation.
1: Yeah, so I think I think you've articulated my point quite well. I think the the synthesis of it is or the center of it is, is that there is no, there isn't an external sort of cultural mood, which is expressed in, you know, clothes and music, whatever, which is forcing you to understand that you're in a different era. And so therefore, you know, if you have that experience, as people did in, you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, you you will have it forced upon you to acknowledge, at least, to acknowledge the fact that, things are changing and not be so absolutely outraged by Corbinites like they're a complete disease like this is like you said a pathology because you understand that things change because you've lived through it but if you're that age then you wouldn't have
2: it's an interesting one because I always understand the idea that like that neoliberalism has produced a period of cultural stasis The reason that was a powerful critique was that it was trying to critique neoliberal ideology on its own grounds, right? So what neoliberalism was supposed to bring in was an entrepreneurial society, a society of dynamism and and change, disruptive innovation and all this sort of stuff. And so by pointing out, well, you've actually produced the complete opposite, it's sort of like this ideological critique. And it's sort of interesting to think of your point, Nadia, in which... That is now being used by the last-standing neoliberals. <laughs> the effect of their of their changes are now being pointed to to say, well, you know, why haven't you produced these these cultural innovations? And, of course, there are material preconditions for these cultural innovations. Well, big up! All the original jungle is massive. The original jungle is there. General you alongside the MB. The world is in trouble. I will tell the murderer...
0: It's incredible general levi or general levy depending how you pronounce it this is a, a sort of fairly classic you know, high energy very ragged influenced uh, jungle track from the sort of beginning of the decade and it's a pretty actually i'm hoping i'm hopefully this one doesn't feature offensively homophobic lyrics but, but um pretty sure it doesn't actually the sort of transmogrification of these sort of elements of you know, bits of hip hop breakbeats, a lot of ragga energy, sort of elements of techno and house into sort of jungle. Like, was this really sort of unique eruption of of creativity and the emergence of a distinctively British, distinctively hybrid, distinctively multicultural form of urban music? And it was, it really did sound like the future arriving when you first started to hear this. And it it took several years. For people, apart from like small networks of aficionados and like ravers and people listening to local pirate stations, to even accept that this was music, you know, it took until sort of ninety four ninety five before, you know, the kind of general opinion of music journalists, other than sort of pioneers like Simon Reynolds, wasn't to say, well, this is just noise. It's just like not even music, really. Pretty extraordinary.
2: I think it's an, it's also an interesting thing to think about how exceptional that the whole post war period was. So so perhaps one way one way to sort of illustrate what we mean by this sort of by what's changed, basically. What changes by the early two thousands. One way to get into that is this is this famous quote from Tony Wilson, who we've talked about on here before. Situationists influenced news anchor from Manchester, factory <laughs> records, etc. He was talking in the the sort of late 90s, I think, and he says, look, you know, I was a young boy at college when the psychedelic revolution happened. And then 13 years later, you know, you get punk happens and I was a TV presenter. Then 13 years after that, in 1989, house music happens and that's a revolution. I, you know, and I was a club owner at that point. And he said, I just cannot wait for 2002 to see what will happen in the next sort of 13 years subcultural cycle when that comes around. So that that's the idea that every thirteen years you just have this sort of revolution basically, which would overturn things and would make people throw their previous record collections out the window and throw their flare jeans out or perhaps throw their straight trousers out and get their buy some new flares or something. It's that sort of that sort of cycle, a sort of almost like an evental cycle which produces sort of new generations of pop music, etc. That's what broke down. It's obvious it broke down because you can't point to anything in two thousand and two or twenty fifteen would be the next wave of that cycle it's that that's broken down rather than that there's any new innovation in music at all and you can only explain that well you could probably try to explain it through sort of changes in technology etc but principally it's about the material conditions of life have just got worse they've harshened there's a lot less space of freedom uh, for young people well that's all true but
0: i'm going to come at your uh, social democratic keynesian analysis with a more properly communist analysis. Like I say. He's done the switcheroo. <laughs> I'm gonna... So that is... Because I would say if we're talking specifically about music, the great period of of formal musical innovation, I think really begins in the 1920s when jazz really starts to consolidate. And, you know, there's a period of relative, arguably there's a relatively quiet period in like the 30s, but it pretty much carries on. And then it ends, you know, it ends in the 90s, really. The the, the innovations of the 90s are the last after echo of it. And it's pretty much coterminous with the historic existence of the Soviet Union on a global scale. What's going on throughout that period is that I mean, probably this is true in lots of other areas of, of cultural production as well, is that essentially a sense of possibility, a sense of a sort of animating force of innovation in music is really driven by the balance of forces of globally and the sense and the sense of possibility created by the sense that the 20th century might not end with the victory of capitalism. They might end in some other way. And the seventies is like the final period of that. That's why the seventies is like the key decade. All of popular music today is essentially derived from some key innovation in the seventies, whether it's hip hop or alternative rock or you know, whatever. And the seventies is the last period. It's the last period when it's not clear that who the winners are going to be of the great contest between capital- liberal capitalism and its various kind of you know, its various contestants. And I think that's the sort of um, the big story, if you like, uh, for me. And I mean, really, what the, for me, my analysis of the long 90s is, well, the, the reason you get this period of, of this sense of cultural stasis, especially accompanied by a kind of ongoing technological revolution, is because basically at the level of the sort of global balance of forces, things are pretty settled by the early 90s. But they are settled in the sense that it's key who the most powerful players are in the world. The most powerful players are Silicon Valley, those sections of finance capital that are most allied with Silicon Valley and the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, like those, are the three forces which are the most powerful in the world. They are the people they're going to. Uh, they are going to get the world they want. Now that is basically hasn't. I mean, that has remained the case, to be honest, since the early nineties. And it's the fact that on the on that fundamental level, the kind of the level of the balance of social and political forces, despite the changing configurations at the level of. National institutional politics that hasn't really been called into question, and it's still not really in question. I think it's that which really limits the, the scope for really kind of radical cultural innovation. I think,
2: yeah, I like this new tanky Gilbert.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, while you, while you were just talking, uh, Jeremy, I was just thinking, okay, has anyone got the world they want? Yeah, absolutely. So has yeah, no, Bill in the 19. 19- Okay, I know you. every time you say Bill Gates, I'm like, watch out, you're not talking about 5G and the lizards. <laughs> like, we need to clarify that. Um, okay, so I, I'll let you come back in a second. Okay, fine. There's a group
2: of. Let Cranky Gilbert talk. Tell us about 5G.
1: <laughs> there's, there's people. Okay, uh, leave aside like centrist dads. Today, they're like, it seems like everyone is discontented. And I'm saying, even though centrist dads have got, or, you know, Bill Gates, or, you know, a certain section of, like, you're saying Silicon Valley or whatever, like, neoliberalism has won, in a sense. It doesn't feel like there's anyone sitting there going, yes, this is the world that we wanted.
0: Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos has got the but world he wanted. But not
1: compared to what he was thinking in the 90s. So I'm trying to compare people who were situated in the 90s
0: yeah, now I think well, do we? I mean, Steve Jobs got exactly the world he wanted. Well, you can look at what Steve Jobs seems to have wanted in 1972, and he got it. He got the world he okay. wanted. You know, he wanted a, he wanted a world of unrestrained market relations, social liberalisation. Uh, you know, and you know, very cheap manufacturing of computers. <laughs> you know, that's what he wanted from very early on, and he, and he got it. He wouldn't have put it in those terms. But he was expressed explicitly a sort of generic libertarian ideology and a belief that, like, basically spreading computing as an end in itself was was a goal. And he got all
1: that. One of the things that's interesting to talk about with with the '90s is when you know i mean i'm i was pretty young in the 90s but i remember feeling like the in like the internet i first you know touched the internet when i was 17 in university and i was like wow this this it's this is our technology like this is our stuff and for about you know five six into the early 2000s five six years there was this feeling that you know big the Concepts around big data and Facebook and Google and whatever ruling everything like didn't really exist, and we thought this was going to be our our space. And there was things like you know MySpace and Indie Media, etc. And that's very different now. And I guess I'm just wondering, even the Steve Jobs's, who have obviously benefited hugely, etc. Would people have seen, would have wanted, desired the technological control? Which we see today, because today it's it's monopoly. It's like totally monopolized. It's not it's not you know like a marketplace. You've got like Google and Facebook, and they and Apple, and they own everything.
0: Well, if, if you think if if they'd asked the question, they would just wouldn't have answered that question. They, but they would have described a world much like the one we're living in.
2: I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's true. There's the California ideology of the sort of late '70s, early '80s, then into the '90s. You know that they didn't envisage that the the internet would turn out this way. Like somebody like Jeff Bezos, as a person, I'm sure uh, having the wealth of a pharaoh is good compensation, and he's pretty fucking happy. Do you know what I mean? But I think that the way that ideology thought the world would pan out is not this world of huge monopolies. You know, really shut down sort of internet. Do you know what I mean?
0: I know what you mean, but if you go into the history of the debates like between those people, the different sections of people in Silicon Valley, say, in the first half of the 90s, there's a, there's a tiny number who are actually interested in taking any kind of action that might prevent that being the outcome. And the rest of them are just not interested in engaging with those questions. It's not like nobody is saying this might all end with a few giant monopolies. You know, there are people on the left fringe of sort of hacker culture and stuff already saying that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The rest of them are not saying, you're talking rubbish, that'll never happen. They're just saying, oh, that's just not an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. So to all intents and purposes, I maintain, they didn't really care, you know, that that's what happened. And I think, you know, that sort of libertarian anti-monopolism, I mean, the point is that was always... a. There were always plenty of things you could do if if you were committed to really like obstructing the emergence of a, of the sort of monopoly capitalism in Silicon Valley, and very few. you know, it's not like they
2: didn't know what they had to do to stop it, and they didn't do it. But they didn't make any attempt to stop it, and I think that's because they were embedded in the, in that wider ideology of the time, though, and, and like that is the neoliberal ideology of the '80s and '90s. You know, that is, they've gone through a period in which they've stopped caring about monopolies, and that happened in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, that's true, but also they're not, they're not neoliberals. That's the thing, they don't really care about whether, whether they're inhabiting neoliberalism or not. I mean, I think actually existing neoliberalism is a sort of expression, it's how the political class responds to the fact that those guys become the most powerful people on the planet. They don't care about neoliberalism. What they care about is just they care about becoming rich And they care about spreading computing like into every area of life. I mean, if you look at their if you trace back that kind of their micro sector, right back to the MIT labs of the 50s, you know, that's all they care about, really. They don't really, they just don't care about these other questions. Like, is it through monopoly? Is it through competition? That's for someone else to worry about. That's for economists and like politicians to worry about. So I think they just don't care one way or another about that stuff. They want everyone to have a smartphone in their pocket. They don't care how you get it.
1: Sure. Yeah. No, I I just think it's an interesting point to interrogate that perhaps, especially in terms of technological monopolies, it's not what people envisaged. I'm not saying that there was a grand plan. I agree with your point that it might not have been like, oh, this is the vision that we want. This is the vision that works for people. But I think uh, if, if you know, if you really interrogate what the internet looked like in, you know, 1995, 1997, it's a, this thing that has a huge influence over our lives, like the centrist dads, presumably, specifically are not, you know, kicking off about this, because they have enough comfort and networks and material wealth in their reality that this is not going to be the thing that they're going to... Uh, kick off about in a sense, but I would even imagine that within that cohort there would be people going like, "How did we get to this?" Effectively, which I think is an interesting position to look at, and from from where we're standing now, because effectively so much has changed, but but in, on the level of political economy, there's there's the centrist dad types are still going, "Well, no, you can't have Corbynism." We don't not we can't have Corbynism, but but yeah that it that it's some kind of pathology because they're they're unable to accept what those changes have been.
0: No, well you're right. I mean it's also true that the sort of the liberal centrist response to the emergence of platform capitalism and platform monopoly has been really specific. So uh, the great text of that is Shoshana Zuboff's book Surveillance Capitalism, which on the one hand is sort of incredible because she's she's a liberal legal scholar who's done a really competent like conjunctural analysis of the new, you know, the new sort of what I I call the new like regulatory assemblage of contemporary capitalism. On the other hand, her political analysis, her political response to it at the end of this really devastating critique of, of monopoly data capitalism is to say, oh, we need more regulation, which is just like just sort of nonsense. I mean, it just ignores the extent to which the problem with surveillance capitalism isn't the surveillance it's the capitalism i mean it is the surveillance as well but it's not it's not the technology it's the fact that it's been deployed in the service of unlimited capital accumulation i mean it's definitely true like i think you guys are kind of gesturing out that none of these guys including people like steve jobs i think they, they never really had a conception of capitalism they never really thought about it one way or another they took the line of least resistance to get what they wanted. the line of East Resistance was to was to work with venture capital, basically, and work, work with the grain of financialization and globalization. But nobody's disagreeing with the, the general point that it's like finance capital and Silicon Valley and, and the Chinese Communist Party were the most the people who've basically driven all this and have certainly got most of what they wanted. But I think also I think that I think this notion of the world that they wanted, you've also got to think about the level of culture. Certainly it's the case that those California those Silicon Valley people in terms of what are now the mainstream cultural and social norms in countries like Britain and America and to some extent globally and within most corporations, it's exactly what they wanted. It's exactly the mixture of like social liberalism, meaningless egalitarian rhetoric and actual like deep hierarchy that they always wanted, they always promoted, like a, even at a really small scale in their institutions. I mean, you've always got to remember how unlikely it would have seemed in, like, 1990 that by the 2010s you would have conservative politicians advocating for gay marriage and this sort of thing. But that's exactly the kind of thing people like Jobs wanted. That's exactly the kind of outcome they wanted, you know. And even things like we've talked about on the show, like psychedelic culture. I mean, I think, you know, the partial normalisation of psychedelic culture, you know, the legalisation of weed in places like the States, I think is driven more than anything by the fact... But that was all, for, for fairly contingent historical reasons, psychedelics and weed was like always part of the culture of those people, you know. And so they've been able, the more powerful they've become culturally and socially, the more it's become necessary to sort of, you know, partially normalise it.
1: But on the level of the everyday, life has, const- has become so constricted compared to compared to then right so so even when we're talking about you know th- that being there being that group or cohort that that were like fine we can see how psychedelic drugs and and weed and whatever become becoming part of culture on a on a kind of mass level on on the west like there's so much less freedom in everyday life than there was in the 90s well it depends
0: what you want to do Depends what you want to do, doesn't it? I think that precise we have precisely the kinds of freedom they always wanted us to have. If you wanna do th- if you wanna coordinate your activity with a bunch of people who are exactly like you but live on different sides of the planet, it was completely impossible. There was no technical means of doing that before. Now it's really easy. Yeah, you, know, you can spend all your time just hanging around with a group of mates who live on different continents, you know, talking on Zoom, talking on WhatsApp. That's easy.
1: That's really interesting that you see that in, within freedom. I, I wouldn't put that within the the cadre of the I'm going to have to think it's about it's a kind that. of freedom. I'm not sure it's the freedom
0: to do stuff that those people want to do and that those people wanted to enable other people to be able to do. So I think that I think we that we've had all kinds of freedoms have expanded insofar as their freedoms that those people wanted us to have.
1: So for me, which is different to the guys, obviously, because there's an age difference like the I was listening to lots of psychedelic rock from the kind of, you know, 70s, um, etc, when I was a late teenager, early 20s. And then Cooler Shaker comes along and these other bands that are playing this psychedelic rock with like all of this kind of. Indian samples in the background, stuff that I'd only heard before on the Beatles etc but also some really energetic guitar riffs and I absolutely love a good energetic guitar riff so we're going to play 303 by Kula Shaker
2: I'm just stuff just a man's of portions on wheel over now and down the road to the 303
1: in the land of summer sun we have just begun riding out with my friends in a mercedes Benz. so going back to the point about freedom my and, and this is me talking about within the experience of me in the uk so i would spend 4 months in the summer in the uk something like between 1995 and 2000 or or you know even later between 1997 and 2000 and uh, between that 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 10 years until the crash i experienced london as a much freer place in terms of like private land in terms of demos, although other people might have had a completely different experience of that, in terms of things like there being loads of nooks and crannies in London that were not overdeveloped and over-commercialized. The fact that I felt like there were places you could just hang out, it was easier to hang out. Things weren't so expensive. I didn't feel under surveillance. Yet Things were affordable. It felt like there was a lot more live music, and that's me as like a teenager and in my early 20s. And then the crash happens and then austerity happens. And all of the things that I love are taken away from me. So all the small festivals close down, like the city festivals close down. So many different community events are taken away. A lot of public land is privatized. Things like, you know, Camden Market, etc. Just start becoming built up and full of Starbuckses. The streets start becoming dirtier, like that's what happens with austerity. And so my experience of the nineties, the nineties, things were much cheaper and easier and more fun.
2: It, it's hard for me to answer a question of whether I feel less free now than I did in the nineties, because that's all mixed up with like life cycle effects and you're a different age, etc. And and that, that that all has an impact. But like I can do a quick analysis when I look at my daughter Mace, who we've talked about quite a bit in the last couple of episodes. <laughs> she's 20 now and her life is incredibly is much less free basically it's much more constrained than uh, i was at her age when i was 20 i was like living in some squat but you know it was a squat in a massive house etc we could do some work we could be on the dole You know, I mean, it was a time of much, much more freedom, just had so many more options, felt much less constrained by things such as surveillance and these sorts of things, much less constrained under having to have one single narrative about your life, basically. And so basically everything you do, having to fit into a narrative upon which will fit you into a job market, etc., for young people now, their lives are incredibly much more restrained. They, what they can do, you know, the amount of freedom they can have to sort of determine their own path is incredibly more restrained than when I was young. Um, You know, based perhaps I didn't have a particularly typical, I wasn't a particularly t- typical 20 year old. But like, yeah, basically, I think those are the things that really have, have constrained freedom. The ability to sort of reinvent yourself and think about who you want to be, et cetera. I think that is is to do with material conditions. It's Mm -hmm. also to do with the fact that everything you do is now archived, et cetera. It's quite hard to reinvent yourself when your past self, yourself from five years ago, is all archived on the Internet, on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram, et cetera.
1: Exactly. And also everyone can find you our parents couldn't find us I don't want to go down the nostalgia route too much but like nobody know knew who I, where I was unless it, I had told them like my physical body was wherever I want where, wherever it was I was not on the end I didn't have a device on me it was very very different
0: does someone want to say something about Spice Girls yeah
1: mean it was your suggestion i mean i can do it the only thing i'd say about spice girls is that what wannabe kind of blasted this girl power onto the scene which was i don't know it you know as a young teenager felt like a good thing at the time but i don't have a bigger analysis
0: well no i would just say like there were lots of criticisms that could be made of it like it wasn't you know girls were not like going away reading shulamith firestone and you know Anne oakley because of read because of spice girls but everyone i knew who had who was a parent of like girls at that time which i wasn't yet but i would be was really happy because simply having the idea of a sort of popular vernacular feminism being expressed in the pop charts was a really seemed like a really radical development and it was also very clearly contrived as a deliberate riposte to the sort of emergent lad culture you know the people marketing the Spice Girls realized that girls were going to be very alienated by this revanchist masculinism and, and we're going to find appealing a kind of explicit rejection of it. Of course, the song, the actual lyric of the song is a song about solidarity as well. It's a song about, you know, if you want to be my lover, you've got to get with my friend. like friends. Is, friendship is more important than um, romance. So it is a pretty radical statement on its own terms.
2: So I think we should play ping pong by Stereolab. It's a song from 1994. Stereolab, are sort of, they emerge out of the sort of indie scene uh, and they're particularly, they're sort of, they're quite influenced by sort of kraut rock and then sort of like lounge music as well is in there. Uh, but one of the interesting things about them is that some of their lyrics, not all of their lyrics, are, are left-wing and, and particularly Marxist. And so ping-pong is really interesting uh, because the lyrics are really, they're, they're in fact, they sort of seem to talk to, a, to the idea of kondratiev waves. Right, so this some of these this is some of the lyrics. It's alright because the the historic pattern has shown how the economic cycle tends to revolve. In a round of decades, three stages stand out in a loop, a slump, a war, then peel back to square one and back for more. Bigger slump, bigger war, and smaller recovery. Huge slump, greater wars, a shallower recovery. There's an analysis of the song in, in this article in Viewpoint magazine. I can't remember who the author of that is. And it's great because it sort of links this idea of... So contrative waves with this idea that there are long economic waves in the economy, sort of like 50 years long, basically. And you get, they get marked by these big epochal crises, so like the 1930s and 1970s, thousand and eight. Uh, Whether they exist or not is is difficult to tell, because when you're working in like 50 year periods, the number of data points in capitalism gets so small, it's hard to make a a clear distinction. But the idea is there's a sort of long, long boom and slumps, basically. And then you have crises or wars which clear out the old sort of technological base and allow new technology to come in. So Kondratiev is like a, a, a Soviet economist who sort of left but not Marxists, I'd I'd say that. But he gets taken up by right-wing economists such as Schumpeter, who who, who like this idea. And so basically this article sort of links the sort of looping analysis of capitalism. There are long loops to the sort of looping, driving, sort of Krautrock, motor-driven structure of of stereolab at that point. So one of their later albums is called Dots and Loops, and they're really into the look, like this looping sort of music, in which change sort of emerges slowly. That brings up this, this, this really interesting idea of how you link this idea of long economic waves or that the moments for political change are, uh, are sometimes very, you know, they're basically historically rare. And how do you fit that in with like human biography? The late 1990s, they looked like a stable period of growth in which things seem to, society seemed to settle down to some degree. The crisis of 2008 shows that that growth was illusory, right? It was based on debt. Uh, and debt is is a way to is a way to displace antagonism in time basically you, rather than struggle over resources now you have access to those resources now and then you know the antagonism comes later when when it's time to pay as it turns out such was that that debt was linked to asset price inflation and so when the antagonism comes due it turns into an antagonism between generations basically but it's that point of when i look back at the 90s i think i think about this problem of like you know what do you do in a period when There seems to be social stability. I spent a lot of the '90s involved in sort of like radical politics, and one of the things that we were trying to do there was work out how you do politics in the new conditions. Do you know what I mean? But you need the wider historical era to change before those new uh, forms of organising can be tried out on a really large level. And in fact, I see the sort of whole period from 2008 onwards as an attempt by that left that was developed through the '90s and early 2000s to try to lose. The left melancholy of that time to try to lose the the sort of constriction of possibility that we all took on at that time. Basically, that's why you should listen to this song. Perhaps this is also a time to get into our experience of the of the early nineties. Because if I if I wanted to sort of detach myself from that thing, our are, are, are young people are we less free now? And think about what it felt like in the early nineties. My my early nineties was not preparing me for that. You know, the late nineties and the two thousands basically. I experienced it as a as a time of real political flux and change, and it's to do with the fact that like the key event of my my youth or early adulthood was the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. The key year is probably something like 1990, when I'm like 1920, and the the Berlin Wall is collapsing. There's all these sort of regimes collapsing around the world. It felt like a period of revolution. And what was going on in the UK was there was a really huge social movement, the anti poll tax movement. And the anti-poll tax movement looked very different to a lot of the stuff that happened in the 1990s because it was much more, it was like a community-based, it was basically that the, the poll tax was like this really regressive tax on every person in the country to replace council tax. Oh no, council tax comes in later, <laughs> to replace the rates. And it's organised on a sort of like, you know, on a community level, non-payment, protest, riots, all these sorts of things, quite intoxicating. And in my head, they were that that sort of period was mixed up that sort of campaign was mixed up with stuff that was I was seeing on TV from Eastern Europe and, and, and also in China, where there was the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, of course. And that was mixed up with um, uh, a sort of cultural revolution that seemed to be happening, which was, you know, rave, acid house. You know, it's to me, it seemed like a period of 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 like huge possibility, basically.
0: So I'll say, I think you're right. I mean, I agree about the sort of declining freedom. It's a good point. In terms of substantial life choices that were available to people and the basic material conditions of life you know rent wages grants you know and education it's incredibly constrained now my own experience of the 90s was always conditioned by the fact that I was a, a pretty acutely conscious of the extent to which that space of freedom I think had, al- had already narrowed a lot compared to what it had been for people sort of 10 years older than me and 20 years older than me in the 70s and 80s and was in the process of narrowing and narrowing over over the course of a period. So I think I would say you take any point from sort of 1978 really and and then draw a line into the future you're going to you know anyone living through that is going to experience that space of freedom narrowing sort of slowly. And that sort of carries on right until the present. So whether the 90s was a time of freedom sort of depends what you're comparing it to. Like at the time, I suppose I wasn't thinking about what it would be like if it just kept getting worse and worse. I was mostly thinking about the extent to which it felt like we'd already lost quite a lot of uh, those sort of conditions. I think this idea of the early 90s is a moment when, well, possibly things could have gone differently. Now, the, the the world we ended up with by sort of the early 2000s when Blair is about to take Britain into the Gulf War, you know, which is sort of the moment which for a lot of people consolidated the realisation that we just didn't even have a functioning democracy, and probably hadn't done since the 70s. The end of history hypothesis was always that, yeah, this can only go one way now. We're at the start of the 90s, there's only one way this can go. And the reason for, like, the centrist-ad cohort that remained such a powerful idea is because that seemed to be proved right. I mean, from their point of view, it was proved correct that that was the outcome. The world described by Fukuyama would be the world they would find themselves growing up in, getting jobs in, having families in. So obviously, it's kind of not surprising in a way that they're really, they, they still don't really believe that anything about that hypothesis was incorrect or inadequate. And so, even though they don't, I think we have to be clear like, that, you know, most centrist dads have never heard of Fukuyama, but they're, but they nonetheless they internalised a version of his his thesis that was widely disseminated in various forms. But so, Kia, so you're going to talk about that? Like, why though? What what is a different understanding of the world in the, in the early nineties that might lead to the conclusion that actually those outcomes weren't inevitable?
2: Yeah, I mean, that is a it's a question we've sort of talked about before. And Probably not on the show, but we've talked a lot off the show about it, about whether the early 90s was a lost acid communist moment, basically. It's really quite a difficult question to say, could the 90s have gone any other way? But I can talk about my own experience of that early 90s. um, And I thought it was going a different way. And like I said, I was really influenced by the anti tax movement. And you know, for the early part of the two thousands, you know, I spent that time looking for the next version of the poll tax. What it was going, what was it going to be? I thought the anti poll tax movement was the start of a new cycle of struggles. Turns out it wasn't. Basically, when we look back at it now, it looks like the the end, the capstone to the struggles against Thatcher in the eighties. The other thing that was going on is is all of these revolutions in 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 the Easter collapse of the the fall of the Berlin Wall is what the event gets put down under, and the way that played out. didn't wasn't necessarily, it wasn't written in stone at all. You know, the world that, that Eastern Europe and Russia ended up with by the end of the 1990s was, really was not the world that the the dissidents from those countries wanted by any means. In, in 1990, I ended up going to Eastern Germany for this conference, quite a small conference, a small, more of a sort of gathering, which was like Western radicals meet Eastern dissidents. And it's sort of interesting because it was in we had to go across. It was East, East Germany was still East Germany. The wall had fallen down and things were in real turmoil in, in in East Germany. And so this conference is held in this sort of rural conference centre, which, you know, six months before it had been the venue for the elite of the Communist Party of, of the DDR to meet, basically. Now the dissidents are taking it over and it was like Western radicals meeting Eastern dissidents. And, you know, what both sides wanted or thought was going to emerge was you know, more libertarian democratic forms of socialism, not the harshest form of capitalism. That's what that, that's what the, 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 the sort of initiating demonstrations in the DDR wanted. You know, they were they were proposing a democratic reformation of socialism rather than uh, reuniting with Western Germany and how Western Germany just taking it over because when that happened, they realised that Western Germany wasn't particularly democratic either. In fact, what they were going to live under was a world was not a democratic world, not even democratic capitalism. It's going to be a world of oligarchs. Particularly when we talk about about Russia, you know the the whole the whole transformation of Russia into a this is this is now Tanky Milbin, I think I'm getting <laughs> <laughs> the whole transformation of Russia. Uh, into capitalism through through this shock doctrine this sending over these these chicago school economists that, and they wanted they wanted to to really accelerate this transformation so the communist party could never come back again and it was so brutal that like so many people died a bit just because you know the removal of of their living standards the, the removal of of, of any sort of state support, et cetera, it was sort of like the same level of death you'd find in a, in a small-scale nuclear war. So you've got this situation, the Cold War, where these two nuclear forces sort of face each other and everybody worried about people sending in the nukes. All you had to do was send in the Chicago School of Economists and you'd get the same sort of death, death count, basically. Yeah, I
0: think it's really important to be clear about this. The drop in life expectancy in Russia between 1989 and two thousand was the by far was the biggest drop in life expectancy in an industrialized country in peacetime outside outside of an epidemic, you know, ever. And also everybody should know that every single Chinese person knows that. And that is, you know, if you want to understand anything about the politics of China, you have to understand that every single Chinese person knows what happened when the Communist Party left office in 1989. That's a really great point, actually.
1: No, that is this is all very, very good points. I feel like my tanky tendencies tend to come out when I talk about um, global politics from the Arab world rather than, rather than these subjects. But I have to say I agree. We are sounding slightly tanky, but it does all make sense.
0: I mean, the real tanks uh, claim, and I don't know enough about this history to know how valid it is, that uh, if it weren't for American sort of direct over and covert intervention in the presidential election in the mid '90s, then the communist candidate would have won. The Yeltsin, you know, wouldn't have won. It's certainly from what I've known. I've tried to look into that history a little bit. I think the claim that Yeltsin wouldn't have won is very strong. The claim the communists would have won is not that strong. But certainly there was direct intervention to make to try to make sure that happened. The Americans, the Americans were worried that what was going to happen in the mid-90s was the Russians, Russians were just going to elect a, a democratically elected communist government who was going to go all Salvador Allende on them. And they and they did do whatever, you know, they did go out of their way to make sure that didn't happen. And that's one of the bases for this idea, isn't it? That well, possibly, there's still a, a glimmer of hope in the early 90s that the outcome isn't going to be just, you know, complete sort of neoliberal, neoconservative global hegemony. I mean, certainly in Britain, at the level of music culture, I mean, there definitely was a sort of shift in the mid-90s. The early 90s is this, uh, there's this efflorescence of musical experimentation. The stuff coming out of dance music, there's jungle drum and bass, there's sort of things like Asian dance music, the sort of Bangra, stuff like that, building up from the 80s. There's this real sense of Britain's kind of urban multicultural culture finally producing the sort of things that people have been feeling it ought to be able to produce for some time, It's kind of wildly innovative forms of music and culture and then um you know there's the, the, the big explosion of ambient music there's all this kind of experimentation and this sense that the period when like white rock music was just the sort of dominant form was finally over from my point of view at least all, all that gets sort of it doesn't get successfully shut down but there's a there's a deliberate reaction against all that in the form of you know the, the sort of Britpop. I'm not so much the bands themselves or the people listening to them, but the very deliberate activities of like a certain set of critics, journalists, media operators, especially a bunch of people at the BBC who really break with the BBC's tradition of trying to not promote like one genre of pop music over another. They all kind of converge to try to create this, this, you know, a discourse as I I called it at the time, which says that, well, actually, there's one form of sort of musical identity which probably expresses like, what it means to be British in popular music, and that is white men's guitar rock. I mean, even before the notion of Britpop was fi- firmly consolidated, you really, you have this cohort of like they're basically they're, they're like Oxbridge educated, like indie fans from the '80s who are really trying to use their positions at the BBC to like define their musical taste as central. I like, think, do you remember that band Biss? this became like the first unsigned band ever to be allowed to play on Top of the Pops. And the, the reason they were allowed to play on Top of the Pops is because they sounded like a C86 indie band of the kind of... Do you that...
1: want to explain Top of the Pops to our listeners who are under the age of 40?
0: Yes, yeah. Sorry, I've gone off on one now. It's <laughs> like
2: we are not left Twitter, this. So to... <laughs> Top
0: of the Pops was the BBC's flagship uh, pop music programme for decades. The policy of Top of the Pops was they would play a selection of music from the top forty singles charts, and anything that was in the top forty singles charts could appear in it, and nothing that wasn't in the top forty singles charts would appear. And that was also the policy of Radio One's date, the Radio One, the national commercial pop, not commercial, the national publicly funded radio station for sort of mainstream commercial pop music since its inception at the end of the sixties. They'd had a few specialist evening programmes where the policy in the daytime had been all music played will be from the top 40 and anything that's in the top 40 will get played. And then what happens in like the early 90s is, this, is that it the, B, the BBC music programme is taken over by this sort of cohort of, sort of upper middle class, sort of, as I say, sort of Oxford indie fans from the 80s yeah, who'd been at university in the 80s. And they decide they're going to change all this. And instead they're going to leave off the playlist music they think isn't cool and they're going to heavily promote music they think is cool. So there was a big furore because like Status Quo had like a top five single, but they refused. They said we're not playing it on Radio 1 because we're cool now. And uh, they put Bist. It's like unsigned indie band from Scotland. They put on, um, or oh, they put on top of the pops, yeah. And I think Suede as well. Before they'd released it, released any records, they let them play because they because they wanted to be cool. But they had a very very specific idea of what it meant to be cool. What it meant to be cool was to play sort of white. Slightly androgynous, why indie, why indie rock of the kind? that's the sort of mainstay of the John Peel show in the 1980s. I
1: call it the flinging arms kind of. What's it called? Sh- toe gazing, or is it shoe gazing? Whatever. Shoe it is. gazing. Yeah, kind of. I like, think
2: we should but... invent to toe gazing as toe gazing <laughs> as the the open toed sandal version of shoe gazing. <laughs> but that was basically
0: that was the first cultural expression. That along with like Loaded magazines, which is like the original Lad Mag, which maybe I've talked to enough kids to talk about loads in a minute. That was like the first cultural manifestation of what would become like the ideology and structure of feeling of the is dads. You know, it was basically the sort of culture and attitudes of a completely depoliticised section of the sort of upper middle class. Like being presented to the rest of the world as completely universalizable and sort of completely hegemonic. But the point about all this in relation to the early 90s is at the time, certainly to people like me and people like Mark, you know, Fisher was writing about this early on, and people like Simon Reynolds, who was, you know, made his name as the great champion of jungle, like with other kind of white middle class people, you know, it felt like this was a really deliberate reaction against this this moment of, of radical possibility of the early 90s. It felt like there's a moment of radical possibility had opened up. And the re- response to that had been no fucking way. Like, you're not having this shit. What you're going to have is 24-7 landfill indie. Like, say, so the- a never-ending, boring hour of the John Peel show.
1: It's so good, though. I reckon if you guys were my age, this is my thesis, I know you're going to hate it, but if you were my age, you would feel differently about music from that era because all of the music that you hate, I absolutely love. I love all of the pop all of the indie all of that that's the sound that i really really enjoy so like even if there was this master plan to kick out any diversity i just i think that music sounds so good and i'd never heard it before obviously because of my age
2: yeah, but let's not let's not slag off um, Cooler Shaker anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you know, no, well, it's fine it's fine that you slag off Cooler Shaker. We're still playing it though because I love Cooler Shaker. So, you know, that's completely fine. I just think you'd hear it differently because I feel that way the reason I'm making that argument is because I feel that way about music from 2002 onwards. To me, it's just like it th- there's a level of blandness and it's because and it feels like something is recycled and i'm not sure if that's because the cultural argument about the, the around the long 90s is correct or whether it's that has to do with my age or to do or slightly both
0: Asian Dub Foundation just extraordinary musical project uh, led by the the incomparable John Pandit started producing music in the early to mid 90s they were one of the elements of what came to be known as the Asian underground it okay, brings together hip hop bangra to dub house techno a really really articulate lyrics really self conscious um political project and they came out of a community music project that was a kind of legacy funded project from the glc actually and for me they were always like the, the they were always the great riposte to the whole concept of brit pop so if if your idea of brit pop or brit popular music does not include asian dub foundation then what what function is it is it serving
2: I think we're, we're sort of agreeing that that like you can split the 90s up basically into, you know, the, the early 90s was different and there did seem to be a potential for, for something else to emerge. You know, my, my experience of that was, or, or when I look back at it now, I sort of realised that that basically my my what I thought was happening was getting overdetermined by these really big structural changes on a sort of global level, basically. And that is, you know, the effects of Of the fall of the Berlin Wall, that had lots of effects on the political imaginary, etc. You know, the elimination of the idea that the world is split into two antagonistic poles, and all these sorts of things. I think that psychologically has an effect, but like just materially, one of the effects is between like 1990 and something like 92 or three, the global labour force accessible by global capital doubles. Basically, it doubles in a couple of years, and that is just a one-off event. Basically, it's never happened in human history before. It'll probably never happen in human history again. And it just has this huge effect because, you know, you double the supply of something, then the negotiating position, the bargaining position of labor around the world just becomes incredibly constrained. And it plays a massive role in the, in the collapse of, of the historic left, basically just to go go back to tanky gilbert's sort of analysis <laughs> we could put eric, Gilbert. we could we could put eric eric hobbsborne his book uh, the age of extremes gets published in the mid 90s and what goes along with the long 90s is his thesis is there was a short 20th century the 20th century lasts from 1914 till 1990 perhaps 92 something like that that's his thesis you know basically the 20th century is linked to the end of the first world war the the russian revolution uh, the potential for a, a different form of political and social organization, and then that falls apart in 1990, and then basically history loses loses focus. Basically, I think that's his thesis: is you know that it was the challenge of the left that not only disciplined capitalism during the post-war years, but basically it structured. It was the left's conception of history which structured history, which structured idea of of modernity and progress, etc. When that falls apart. You know, so many things, so many other things fall apart and we just enter a period of drift and basically drift towards corruption. You'd probably say something like that. You know, in 1990, as soon as the the Italian Communist Party falls apart, every single political party in Italy falls apart in a big corruption scandal. And it's never been put back together ever since. You know, that's the sort of that's the short 20th century sort of sort of idea.
1: It's so it's it's really interesting, though, that that's expressed in the point of it being short, because so much shit goes down in the 20th century, like so much shit goes down. And then I would argue that, OK, you've got I mean, so obviously, for my age group, politically being in, in the West, like the Iraq war is like fucking massive. But then it feels like you kind of coast until the financial crisis. There's like five, six years where there's not much happening. And then and then you've get, you, you get you get crash, austerity, Brexit, and now the pandemic. Like it a lot has happened in the last thirteen years.
0: And now I think that's a really good point. I get I am gonna say one more thing about the about uh, relating Britpop to that you note, know, that point about the global m- labour market changing and everything. And Britpop was also, as well as constituting this sort of reaction in the way I've described it, against sort of positive things, it was also informed by a sort of melancholic nostalgia. For the kind of lost world of full employment, that it wasn't an accident. Like the historic peak of full employment is nineteen sixty six,
1: mm. so it's
0: not an accident that it, it's specifically the historical and cultural moment of nineteen sixty six, which Britpop is most infused by this kind of longing for and this nostalgia for. So, which has kind of reactionary implications if you're a woman, if you're a gay, if you're a black person who doesn't want to go back to a world in which those people were all thoroughly marginalised and subordinated to white men but at the level of sort of class and a sort of class feeling, there's a certain genuine sort of sadness about the loss of that sort of class power and the loss which comes with full employment, which I think is sort of there. It's there in the sort of, you know, tawdry melancholia of, of Oasis's you know, guitar chords.
2: It's de- it's definitely true. There's definitely something to that because, you know, Cool Britannia is all that, you know, swinging London.
1: Yeah, re- yeah, big
2: sort of thing. The thing that, that complicates the picture that, Gem sets up is is things like loaded magazine and that emergence of new ladism in the late nineteen nineties. The strapline for loaded is for men who should know better. It's basically the reinvention of of Laddism, but with its tongue in its cheek. Basically, it's an illustration of this of the irony that gets soaked in culture at that point. If you look at comedy and all that sort of stuff, like biographically, James Brown who was the editor of Loaded when it started, and he's most associated with this. You know, he was a punk in Leeds. He used to do a fanzine with a friend of mine, Ben Sicker War, uh, Attack on Bazag. And so, like, this is somebody who would live through a fairly politicised sort of Leeds punk scene.
0: And he also, his, his account of of the genesis of Loaded was it was a specific reaction against the feminising effects of rave culture on British men. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah.
1: that's interesting. That's, that's really
2: interesting. He, he said specifically... That was what that was what it was reacting against. Yeah, that is really interesting. Actually, in fact, we so we should take that sort of the analysis of laddism back a little bit because that's one of the classic stories of of early rave is the idea that loads of people start taking ecstasy, and people stop fighting at, at nightclubs, etc. Different sort of football firms take ecstasy and start hugging each other instead of fighting. So you can see this sort of this this sort of feminization of laddism through the early nineties. And then this is it's definitely a, a revanchist reaction to that, right? Which all adds to that, to, the, to your thesis, there's a sort of nostalgia for that post-war period. The bit that, that goes against it is this idea of, of irony that, you know, uh, this is for lads who should know better, right? But, you know, we're allowed to do it now because all of the problems have been solved. We don't have sexism or racism anymore, right? And if you, you know, if you keep going on and banging on about sexism or racism, you're from a different period. Yeah, you're you know, boring. There is no politics. Yeah, you're boring. You're naive. We don't need politics anymore because we solved the problems. That's why the history has ended. There's no racism. There's no sexism. You know, there, there's class mobility and all these sorts of things.
0: And it was also about interpolating men as consumers rather than as workers. I mean, that was the well, a big point for capital is that. interpolating men as workers doesn't work anymore because men don't have the kind of jobs that give them a sense of stable identity and also we know historically what happens when you interpolate men as workers they go and join unions and stuff so loaded is partly about interpolating men as consumers that what defines masculinity now is not having a job or looking after a family in fact or you know even in a traditional particular world. what what defines being a man
2: is what you buy it's like buying shit buying gadgets consuming porn but you could say that that's what the style mags were doing in the 80s but they still had a had more of a link to a sort of countercultural style. well that
0: is that's true they did that in the 80s and they but they did it at that moment that was seen as subversive and it was tied to a sort of partially sort of queer agenda yeah yeah
2: yeah.
1: And we just we just want to be clear that, you know, if if there was this guy from Loaded who was saying, I'm doing this project because of the feminization of like, whatever, due to I think you were saying rave culture, whatever. I'm not accepting that term and we shouldn't accept that term from RM, that feminization that hugging and not being not being violent is feminization. Well,
0: I mean that was how it was
2: how it was experienced. Yeah, I, mean, you know, it was, I was, understand. It, That's I mean, amazing. it was really. I mean, I th- I'm sure we've talked about it on the show before. No, but one way to, un- to understand it is like basically people were trying to undo bits of the of what masculinity meant at a particular time. And so, you know, if we think about the early '90s as a period in which in which there was a different possibility, there was a possibility for a different for a progressive ladism for a different form of what masculinity meant basically and that's what gets undone that's what gets undone in the late 1990s i think the important point of all that is you know it happened then because it was that was seen as like we have done we've gone through those struggles and now we live in a post-racial post-sexist post-homophobic society that's what the that's what the loaded gambit was the, the magazines that come after it, they drop all of that, and now there's a lineage there, which is all just about, you know, the whole banter lineage, which is all just about basically using banter and the thinnest disguise of, of irony in order to assert hierarchies, basically, or, or to reassert hierarchies. Interesting
0: anecdote. Around when
2: Loaded first
0: came out, I was very exercised about it, and I was writing about it a little bit as a start of my PhD, and I did a, I gave a talk at some small kind of left event in Brighton. Well, I was definitely the youngest person talking. And I said, Yeah, loaded is a disaster. We should be burning loaded in the streets right now. Uh, and they all laughed at me and said, No, it's harmless irony. You're being very naive. You're being very 70s, Jeremy.
2: That is the structure of feeling of the late 1990s, isn't it? That it totally is. It was, yeah. But you can also see it in the, in comedy. So, like one of the things we have to say in, in the in the centrist dad discourse is that 90s comedians are the armed wing of the centrist dads, right? They're the most militant on fa- on, on Twitter and Facebook, and on, well, not Facebook, Twitter, etc. And in and in newspaper columns and these sorts of things. You know, somebody a character like David Bedil, for instance, right? Who who let, who then did this, you know, fantasy football show with uh with frank skinner which was really sort of taking that loaded sort of masculinity to an even further extent until you know basically they 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 run this long-term bullying campaign against this black footballer in which david buddy blacks up and puts a pineapple on his head which he says was probably a mistake now but like you know that slippage between the irony this veneer of irony is so small it barely exists and like 90s comedy and particularly two, uh, early 2000s comedy it's just all punching down, basically. It's all punching down at the weak, basically, taking the, taking the piss out of people because they're disabled or because they're gay and all these sorts of things. You know, it's a counter revolution against the whole alternative comedy thing that happens in the in the nineteen eighties. But I think what's been re- happening really interestingly in, in this sort of clash of the generations over the last sort of five years is this real battle about over over irony and naivety. Let me do a little argument here. <laughs> with irony there's a there's like two there's a there's two sort of notional audiences there's a naive audience who doesn't understand the double meaning and then there's a sort of knowing complicit audience who understands the double meaning right and it's the humor comes from the complicity so the last five years has all been about 90s comedians and left-wing shit posters trying to have a battle over who is the naive audience right are the are the are the young naive because they believe politics can change the world which is what the 90s ideology is or are nineties comedians naive because uh, they can't understand that the world has changed and that their experiences are no longer are no longer the, the the dominant experience of the world? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I'd be interested in whether the phenomenon of the centrist dance has existed in previous in it. Like, have there been other decades? And I'm talking probably before the 1950s where this has happened. So my dream scenario is that. A hundred years ago, this was the same situation in terms of how it could be mapped is that there was this this category of people, and then you know that then there was the so called Spanish flu, and then there was a war, and then they had the roaring twenties where culture changed dramatically in the West. We're talking about the West here, and I have you know I've got to have hope I mean why else are we kind of doing this stuff that 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 the nineteen that we're now that we could have the Roaring Twenties again in terms of a, a, a cultural revolution. I mean, also because I just really like 1920s cabaret culture. I want that aesthetic back. <laughs> and I want that those kind of freedoms, and especially kind of the freedoms that urban women found, and not only in the West, but also places like Cairo. Um, and I would like to think that the combination of, you know, Brexit and austerity and... Um, The pandemic, you know, from the ashes, we could find some really interesting radical cultural moments coming up.
0: Well, the 20s and the 70s are the two great decades of of cultural revolution. So they're 50 years apart. So maybe. Personally, I think we're 10 years away yet. I think we've got 10 more years of this shit before it really kicks off.
2: The phrase "the Roaring 20s is interesting because that's actually that's linked to the idea that the Twenties were roaring because there was an economic boom, basically leading up to the economic crash in nineteen twenty-nine. Uh, you know, stock markets go really, re- really, sort of gangbusters, etc. Basically, that's sort of linked to the whole cl- culture of like flappers and and all that sort of stuff. But the huge in- innovation in cultural, the huge cultural revolution that's going on at that time is much more linked to the effects of the Russian Revolution but people are talking a little bit now about we will have a roaring 20s again this time and because people are thinking there might be a bounce back from the from the covid contraction like it is probably not going to work out that way because the structural deficiencies of the economy are, t- are just too big to be carried out by a little boost in spending like you know a little boom caused by the fact that some middle class people have done a bit of saving over the pandemic that's not going to bring cultural revolution cultural revolution only comes back when if the young left generation left assert their interests and become the dominant hegemonic force, basically.
0: Well, I mean, it's also probably com- completely out of our control, isn't it? It's gonna, it's gonna depend yeah. on you know, at what point in history the Chinese working class starts to organize, or the, or the Communist Party pulls back on abs- full-scale complicity with American finance capital. It's yeah, not I just want a party.
1: This is what <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> this is what I, I know. I know. I'm, I've just got to a point where I'm just like, I just want to go raving.
0: I mean, the bigger point that, yeah, of course, you know, Raymond Williams has these terms the emergent and the residual. The emergent is the thing that's new, that, that's at any given moment. And the residual is something left over from the past, either the recent or the distant past. But the residual can still be really powerful. You know, the centrist ads are a residual class fraction, but it doesn't mean they're not really powerful. And Well, have there been powerful residual class fractions before? Yes. Yeah. No, not only have there been, like there's virtually no point in history when they have, they haven't existed. Just as people thinking that their, their experience of the world is the only experience of the world and nothing can be allowed to challenge it is just normal. I mean, it's not unusual, really. It's more unusual that you get moments of historic opportunity when those things can really be shifted.
1: But also, I think specifically with the the example that we didn't expand on massively about like class and class being, you know, seen as being over in in the nineteen nineties, like when you that's that that was residual until very recently, and and how that has interacted residual from the nineties, and how that has interacted with you know a individualist. Uh, form of identity politics, that has been like a, a car crash, both of those things together.
0: I think the long night is is, is over at the level of formal politics and has been. I, I think the fact that Keir Starmer has been such a disaster so far as leader of the Labour Party just demonstrates to a large extent that it's over. And he, even if Starmer manages to recover his position, he, he's only going to do it through a, adopting some strategy which is different from the politics of the long 90s so i think at the level of politics long 90s is over i do also think that you know in some areas of music i'm really interested in i, I hear things that i think they're not like the, the radical innovations of the 70s 80s 90s but i also sort of feel like they couldn't have been made really during the long 90s there's a lot of really sort of innovative or sort of passionate sort of jazz which i just doesn't sound like the very mannered sort of stylized jazz of that period i and I think there is something going on that makes me feel that the long 90s is over at the level of politics. It's over at the level of political economy. And at the level of the kind of more radical fringes of culture, it's over. But on the other hand, there's a there's a big, persistent, residual sort of cultural infrastructure, which includes like friends on Netflix and it includes the world, the entire cultural universe in which the centre is dads live.
2: On this question of like, are the long 90s over? Like, we shouldn't look at Starmer to work that out, I think. You have to look at, at, at biden there's something going on with biden's presidency which is filtering through into institutions like the imf um the oecd and world bank etc it's still very unclear about what what how, how this is all going to play out but like biden has been a much much more moved much much more to the left than anybody expected i think including biden <laughs> and that that's in terms of this huge sort of infrastructure budget they're basically going to go around and build like new railways and repair all the bridges and stuff like that, like to a huge extent, basically, really, really massive. And they've also, like, the, one of the most significant things is that the moment they're trying to push through, and Biden's really trying to push through the PRO Act, which is the Protect the Right to Organise Act. If you want to see how diametrically opposed that is to what's going on in the UK at the moment, which is basically to make union organising easier. Biden sort of came out when, when there's a re- there was a recent vote at the Bessemer plant in Amazon about whether to unionise Biden came out and said, "Voter, you know people should unionize at Amazon." This is uh, this is such a huge change from what went before, from Obama and all these sorts of things. And there's this this a general recognition that that the bargaining power of labor needs to be strengthened, and the only way you can do that is by making un- unionization easier. This is just complete, you know, like a real real intellectual revolution there was an an article by adam Tooze analyzing paul krugman who's like this what you might call a court economist basically and krugman was like you know a real ideologue in the 1990s real ideologue for, for neoliberal globalization he's just moved to this position where he just says look we have to recognize that classes exist that class conflict is what drives society right you know it's just this huge huge shift seems to be happening how that plays out we don't know you can just say this, that um, the, the sort of form of analysis of the, of the left, the form of analysis and some of the policy prescriptions are the things that are driving the direction of travel in the US. And then that's influencing into things such as the OECD, and, and they're saying that we need a, a minimum level of corporation tax. In America, they're going to raise corporation tax, the complete opposite direction of, of everything that's gone before for the last 40 years. There's something going on, basically. And the the labor right are the ones who controlling the stama leadership, they're going to be the last ones to notice, basically.
1: I mean, absolutely. like I think and, and the funny thing about when you said the bill, I didn't know about the building of bridges and infrastructure. any any Egyptian president will tell you you cannot consolidate power without building a few bridges, and that literally means building some bridges, which is what they all do when when they come to power. But I think the the interesting thing is that, I feel like we're living in a very myopic time in the UK. And I mean, from everyone's perspective, and I wouldn't be surprised that things are changing in the US, but the way that we relate to power here um, being very stagnant, that's what there's, yeah, I, I don't really fully understand the conditions that we're living in at the moment here.
0: Well, I would recommend everyone go read like the 40,000 words I wrote on Open Democracy last year if they want to understand the conditions we're living in here. It's laid out in painstaking detail.
1: Can't you just read it out to us? <laughs> no, Why I could do not? an audio, yeah. audio book. Yeah, audio book with, with, with tapping and your daughter's in the background eating sweets, yeah. please, for the full effect. This is ever.